I was thinking the other day, I was thinking the other day, what if cartoons got saved, they'd start singing praise, in a whole new way, I was thinking, I was thinking the other day, what if cartoons got saved, they'd start singing praise, in a whole new way, here they come, Fred and Wilma. Well, I was thinking the other day, what if cartoons got saved? They'd start singing praise. In a whole new way Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Kawabungaluya And there's Kermit the Frog here Hi-ho, hallelujah And that little bald guy, Elma Fudd Ho-wa-wa-wa-woo-ya Ho-wa-wa-wa-woo-ya well, I was thinking the other day, what if cartoons got saved? They'd start singing praise in a whole new way. Oh, that big old moose and his friend Rocky. And our favorite bear named Yogi. Hey, boo then there's all those little blue guys And they sing How about Peavis and that other guy? Nah, I don't think so Now there's a point to this Looney Tunes I'm not a man, a maniac There's a lot of praising to do Cartoons weren't made for that, he's our God. So let's sing hallelujah, hallelujah. Let's sing hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Yabba dabba doo ya, yabba dabba Scooby dooby loo ya, Scooby dooby loo ya. Woof woof ya. Okay, so today I brought my I brought my treasure my treasure box. What's in my treasure box? My Bible because it's my greatest Exactly. So far you're proving yourself to be a very intelligent group. Okay? We got the treasure box, we got the treasure, which is the Bible. I got Kale's Bible. I can't reach it. Thanks. Okay, there's Kale's Bible. The boy's Bible, which I always point that out. I like that. 
Okay, so it's that boys need the Bible more, to be honest. Okay. Not kale in particular. So, pastor's going to, hey, pastor's going to talk today about sin and forgiveness. So I was wondering, how can I talk about sin and forgiveness? So I thought I'd tell you, well, ask you a couple questions first. Um, do you believe Jesus is really strong, like our song says? Yeah? Okay, well, I'm going to ask you if, he can, if you think Jesus can do this. Do you think Jesus could break chains? Now, I know you know these are fake chains, right? Because I couldn't find the real chains that I was expecting to use in the office. They got thrown away. So I had to come up with my fake chain. But boys and girls, if this was a real chain, do you think Jesus could break this chain? Of course. The chain is no problem for him. He could break anything. He's super, super strong. In fact, the, the, the strongest thing that Jesus ever had to break, you know what it was? Wasn't, no, it wasn't a chain. It was sin. Jesus broke sin. He broke it so that it would no longer get us. Because sin gets us. Sin is when we think a bad thing or we do something wrong. We're naughty, yeah, we do something wrong. And that's what was getting us. Now I'm going to show you something else. Chain back. How about this? You know what this is? What is this? Well, skinnier than string, what is it? Thread. We don't know the word thread because none of us sew anymore. I know you say, so what? Okay, never mind. So, so this is thread. You think you can break this thread? Yeah. Come here, come here. Stand up. Sit down. Break this thread. Ah, so easy. It was so easy to break this thread. I'm hoping it's not so easy in a little bit. Okay, so it was so easy to break this thread. You, you'd be a good helper. Come. Stand right here. Beautiful, beautiful. Put your hands together like this, like you're not doing anything naughty. And put this thread right in the middle. Open your hands a little bit. <laughs> Open your hands a little bit. Good, now, now put them back together. Okay, you see you're holding that thread? Just hold on to it. Just be nice. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. This is a story about a boy, so it won't offend you. <laughs> there was a boy, and um, he, was, he was kind of feeling pretty proud of himself, and he went to his dad, and he said, Dad, I want all the money that I can have, and I want it right now. And that was very rude, because the father, the father was supposed to, you know, provide for the son, and he was, and he was giving him a home and a place to, to eat at his table, and even a job to help take care of things around the house. But the son was just very upset about not having the money he wanted. And he said, give me some money! And he kept saying these naughty things to daddy. How? That was a boy, that's why. And so, and he, he said, he said, well, the father said, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. So he gave him the money. Can you believe that? He gave the boy the money. The boy left the house. He ran down to the town, which he wasn't supposed to go to. He's supposed to stay out of that town. It's a naughty place. No, I'm going there because I like it. And he went and he started using that money, and he used it for bad things. As many bad things as he could find. He found one bad thing, then he found two. I'm not cut off your blood yet, am I? Yep. <laughs> Three, if she starts to faint. 
Somebody help me. Okay. He's, boys and girls, he started spending that money on every kind of naughty thing he could think of. Every kind of naughty thing. Because he said, it's no big deal. Look, it's only a little naughty game. It's only a little naughty toy. It's only a little naughty food. Lola, naughty food. And then he just, then, then he found some friends that were bad. And he said, I'm going to hang out with the bad kids because they do cool stuff. And he started doing all kind of bad stuff. It was only a small thing, you know. It was only a t- he just played a bad game. He just did a, you know, maybe make fun of some people. Maybe go places he wasn't supposed to go. Do you see how many threads are going around her hands? They're all little things. She just snapped one. But this is the way sin is, boys and girls. When we start doing naughty things, and this boy started doing naughty things, each one of those things got tighter and tighter around that boy till he couldn't break free. Try break free. Praise the Lord, she can't break free! Stay still. I don't want you to break free anymore. Now, now, boys and girls, Jesus can break anything. You see, we're going to pretend this is, this is Jesus. I'm not going to cut you. But Jesus, Jesus, boys and girls, will break those chains. When he died on the cross, when he died on the cross, yeah, he broke those chains forever and ever. I'm not going to cut you, okay? I'm not going to cut you. I'm not going to cut you. He broke those chains. He set her free. Yeah. You can have that for a trophy. Thank you so much. So boys and girls, you know what happened to that boy? Listen, listen. Look at me. Look at me. You know what happened to that boy when he, when he finally ran out of all the money and he was feeling all tied up and trapped by all the things he had done? He went back home, and he went like this with his head down. And he, had, he was saying, maybe I could just be a, a slave in my dad's house or a servant. But the father came running out like this with his arms, and he threw his arms around him, and he hugged him, and he said, I love you. I'm glad you're home. He forgave him. He broke the chains of that boy's fear, being afraid to come home, just like God breaks the chains of our fears. Yeah? We got, we got a loving God. Let's pray. Let's pray and then you can be dismissed. Yeah, let's pray. Jesus, help us to see you as a loving God, waiting to forgive us and break the chains and take the sin away. Thank you for loving us so much that you went to the cross with your arms open wide, just like the daddy came with his arms open wide. We love you and we thank you for forgiving us in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go to Children's Church now. Thank you. She almost got free on her own, and that would have been a whole different theology. So praise the Lord she didn't get free on her own, and neither did you or I or anybody else in this room, and you're not going to. We need God to break the chain. In moments like
Since it's been our guide through this series on core Christian beliefs, let's read together again the Apostles' Creed. Let's begin. I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. There's a traditional blessing practiced in many established churches where when the pastor gets up to speak, he says, the Lord be with you, to which the congregation replies, and also with you. Let's do that. The Lord be with you. At one particular church, when the pastor got up to speak, He tapped on the microphone, but he couldn't hear anything, so he tapped on it again. He still couldn't hear anything, so he assumed that it wasn't working, and he muttered under his breath, oh Lord, there's something wrong with you. But the microphone was working, and hearing his words without thinking, the congregation responded, and also with you. That's the point of this next core belief as found in the Apostles' Creed, which says simply, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. We may not want to hear this, but there's something wrong with us, with all of us, and it's called sin. As scripture says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes says, indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. That's the story of creation and the fall in Genesis. It shows that we were created to walk with God, and instead we chose to go our own way. Or like Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And in so doing, we have separated ourselves from God. And as a result, ever since the fall, things are not as they should be, as they were intended to be. There is something wrong with us. Again, Isaiah says in Isaiah 59, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Yet there may be something wrong with us. But, There's also good news. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. That is gospel. That is good news. That's all gospel means, is good news. The good news is that God is doing something about what is wrong with us. As the prophet said, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That's good news. That's gospel. And it's not meant to be kept to ourselves or within these walls here, but shared far and wide. God is at work to fix what is wrong with us, to restore that relationship that our sin has broken. 
We don't have to remain in darkness, separated from the source of life itself. That statement in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, declares two things. First, the reality of sin, but second, the possibility of forgiveness. In relation to the first, we do live in a world which often seems to have trouble with the idea of sin. A refusal to take it seriously. Many no longer even have a concept of what it is. As sociologist James Davison Hunter said, the word sin now finds its home mostly on dessert menus. Peanut butter binge, chocolate decadence are sinful, but lying is not. The measure of sin is now caloric. In a rather creative effort to try to break through to hearers who have a difficulty relating to this idea of sin, one pastor came up with a series of metaphors to try to describe it to him. So he said, if life is a machine, then sin is a bad gear that makes the machine malfunction. If life is a kingdom, then sin is a terrorist movement in the kingdom. If life is a family, then sin is a feud between family members. If life is a body, then sin is an untreated disease that poisons the whole system. If life is a river, then sin is mercury or arsenic that pollutes it. If life is a garden, then sin is the army of slugs that eat your tomatoes. And if life is a computer, then sin is a virus that destroys your hard drive. Refusal to take it seriously is a problem with repercussions not just for us as individuals, but with us as a society. Because until we're willing to face the reality, we will be unable to deal with many problems facing our world. To paraphrase a Wall Street Journal article from several years back, The United States has a drug problem, and a high school sex problem, and a welfare problem, and an AIDS problem, and a rape problem. None of this will go away until more people in positions of responsibility are willing to come forward and explain in frankly moral terms that some of the things people do nowadays are wrong. That's the Wall Street Journal. And what it's implying is the need to get the word sin out of mothballs and begin to use it and mean it. Because at its heart, sin is much more than simply an error in judgment or a mistake or a slip-up. It's rebellion and rejection of God. In essence, turning our noses up and saying, God, I'm going to do it my way. Unless we take that seriously in our own lives, the saving grace of our Lord, the good news, really has very little bearing. That's why confession becomes so important. It's a way of bringing it out into the open, like cleaning a wound so it can be healed. The beginning of salvation comes with facing up to the fact that we are a sinner in need of God's help, in need of grace. And until we're willing to face up to that, the gospel really can't do its saving power. Some of us probably don't want to hear this, but do you realize Christmas is just two months away? When we were in Taiwan in July, one of the things we kept seeing was Christmas trees set up in the lobbies of office buildings and banks. It was all over. When I asked about it, I was told that they set them up and they just leave them there and forget about it year-round. It reminded me of an article my friend wrote for his church newsletter when he wrote, I had a secret. 
and I was embarrassed by it. Time only made it worse. It came to a point where I had to expose what I had kept hidden. Just outside the back door of my house lay our Christmas tree since early January. What once was a glorious tree was now a fire hazard. Several months had gone by. So one Sunday afternoon after church, I wrapped up the tree in a blue tarp, slid it into the back of my car, and drove off to the dump. I felt the eyes staring into the back windows of my car, accompanied with, by thoughts of laughter. He still has his Christmas tree! But I drove on. My deed was recorded in plain sight for everyone. The tree was huge. It filled up the back of my vehicle with the seat folded down. Even the blue tarp wrapped around it couldn't conceal its identity. Why did we get such a huge tree? I thought to myself. This year we're getting a smaller tree. But I could feel my embarrassment rising. Finally, I arrived at the entrance of the dump, which was guarded by two men. It was closed. My embarrassment grew as I turned my car around and had to drive home. When I got home and shared the adventure with my wife, she jokingly asked if I had thrown the tree over the fence. I laughed and shook my head saying, no, there were two guys watching. I left the tree in my car overnight. In the morning, I would dispose of the tree and my embarrassment would end. They say things look better in the morning. What I want to know is who they are. Down the road I drove, but this time with more traffic. The sunlight shone straight into my car, exposing the tree. There was nowhere to hide as more amazed eyes gazed into my car. I pulled alongside a bus at the light. The passengers just stared into my car. I could only imagine what they were thinking. Finally, for the second time in 24 hours, I made it to the dump. I drove right in, down the road to the green waste area, backed up, opened the back of my car, pulled open the tarp, and threw the tree out. My ordeal was over. My secret was dealt with, and I was free. As I drove to work, I thought of how embarrassing it was to drive around with a dead Christmas tree in my car several months after Christmas. It was a confession of sorts of something that should have been done long ago. It was only when it was brought into light that I could deal with it. For if it stayed hidden, that tree would still be in the back door of my house. And then he said, sin is like that. We're embarrassed by it. We don't want other people to know about it. We try to keep it hidden, tucked away where no one will find it. But we know it's there. It doesn't go away on its own. Confession is what brings it to the light of God where he can begin to deal with it, where the blood of Christ can wash it away. Again, as scripture says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. My friend did say that when he shared that tree story with some other friends, they said, why didn't you tell us you were going to the dump? We had our trees you could have taken too. (laughs) Sins not unique to any of us. All have sinned and fallen short. The issue is what can be done about it, and that's the good news. God has done something about it. He sent Jesus. I believe in the forgiveness of sin. And just, about, just as views about God and Jesus and the Spirit can vary greatly between Christianity and other belief systems, as we've talked about previously, it's no surprise that ideas about sin and what can be done about it vary greatly also. So groups like Christian Science will teach that sin, disease, death, evil, they're not real. They're in our head. 
Therefore, forgiveness and salvation are not really an issue. They believe that Christ came to destroy the belief in sin, and the way to overcome it is through learning to deny its existence. Buddhism teaches that suffering and desire are the true evil, not sin. The issue is not sin, therefore, it's ignorance. And the goal is nirvana, not forgiveness and salvation. And nirvana is that place where all desire and attachment is done away for, with. Therefore, Christ and the cross have no bearing. Just an example. Jehovah Witnesses believe in sin that it's willful rebellion to God, to his law, and the way to overcome it is through Jehovah and working hard. Loyal service to the kingdom hall is essential, which includes things like baptism, going door to door. But the thing is, you never really know if you've done quite enough to be saved. There's always one more door to go to. Keep working. Islam teaches that sin is disobedience to the law of Allah. It's caused by human weakness, by forgetfulness, and a spirit of rebellion. Forgiveness and salvation depend upon your good work, which is defined as observing the five pillars of the faith, saying the kalima, which is, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. The salat, or five prayers a day. The psalm, or ritual fasting during the month of Ramadan. The zakat, which is a mandatory tax of the wealthy of 2.5% of their wealth. And the hajj, or each Muslim taking the pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in their lifetime. That's the way to deal with sin. Mormonism teaches that the fall was actually a good thing. Adam deliberately, and they say wisely, took the forbidden fruit, and he chose to sin. In the Pearl of Great Price, it quotes Adam as even saying, Because of my transgression, my eyes are opened, and in this life I shall have joy. The Mormon Catechism states, We ought to consider the fall of our first parents as one of the great steps to eternal exaltation and happiness, and it's through such things as obedience to their teaching, repentance, faith, baptism, tithing, that forgiveness comes. But virtually every religion, faith, or religious faith, except Christianity, places the burden on us, what we do, what we have to do to achieve the forgiveness of our sins, to prove our worth, to overcome our ignorance. But Scripture says, there's something wrong with you. You can't do it. So Christ did it for you doesn't relieve us of the need to live rightly, but it removes the burden of trying to do it on our own. Max Lucado has written, mark it down. God doesn't save because of what we've done. Only a puny God could be bought with tithes. Only an egotistical God would be impressed with our pain. Only a temperamental God could be satisfied by sacrifices. Only a heartless God would sell salvation to the highest bidder. And only a great God does for his children what they can't do for themselves. That is the message of Paul. For what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son. As I said earlier, the Apostle Creed not only speaks of the reality of sin, but also the possibility of forgiveness. With the simple declaration, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And deep down inside, don't we all really know we need forgiveness? In Los Angeles, there's even an organization which operates the Apology Sound Off Line. 
It's a telephone service where people can call and confess whatever wrong they've done for the price of a phone call. Where people once turned to a minister or a priest, they're now too embarrassed, so they confess their sins to an answering machine. The line receives over 200 calls a day, leaving a 60-second message. Adultery is probably the most common confession. Some callers confess crimes like rape, or child abuse, even murder, have been confessed on it. A recovering alcoholic left the message, I would like to apologize to all the people I've hurt in my 18 years as an addict. Another young woman sobbed, I just want to say I'm sorry, right after she caused an accident in which five people died. I just wish I could bring them back. Our world may have trouble with the idea of sin, but deep down inside, we all really know there's something wrong with us, and we need forgiveness. As someone has written, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a savior. In a small And as innocent sometimes as they may seem to us, it's our sins that separate us from God. In Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15, Paul wrote, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them by the cross. To explain what Christ did on Calvary, Paul draws on the ancient custom of canceling debts. The word he used for written code here is one that would have been used to refer to a handwritten document, a certificate of indebtedness. When you borrowed money or took out some debt, you were to write a note in your own hand stating what it is you owed to the other person. It was an ancient IOU. It was a signed confession. And that regulation, that written code, not only spelled out your debt, it also spelled out what the terms were, what the requirements were to pay it back. Our sins, Paul said, were that signed confession. And then he uses three verbs to describe forgiveness of sin and how God deals with our signed confession of guilt. He says, first, he canceled it. It doesn't mean he merely looks the other way. The verb literally means he obliterates it. He wipes it clean. He erases it. It no longer exists in God's eyes. And isn't that what God told the prophet Isaiah when he said, no matter how deep the stain of your sin is, I can remove it. I can make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. Even if you are stained as red as crimson, I can make you white as wool. But then he goes on. He says, he also took it away. He not only wiped it clean, but he literally got rid of the document itself. He destroyed it, in other words. That's the message of Psalm 103, which states, He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He took them away. And the way it was accomplished, he says, 
by nailing it to the cross. Some scholars believe that this was an allusion to the tablet that would be affixed over a crucified person's head, which contained the charges against them. It's the sign that was hung over Jesus' head, which read, King of the Jews. In saying this then, it well could be that what Paul is saying figuratively is that at the cross, there was a sign above Jesus' head that contained the list of all the sins we have ever committed. And he took it away. Isn't that what Isaiah 53 says? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was about him, for it's by his wounds that we are healed. At the cross, Jesus paid the price and said, it's finished. The debt's been paid. It's been wiped clean. It's been destroyed. It's been nailed to the cross. And in the process, he said, the powers of sin and hell itself are defeated. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Again, in this, he uses three graphic verbs to describe what the cross did to defeat those powers. It says he disarmed them on the cross. Literally, Jesus stripped them of their power, just like so much dirty laundry. More than that, he made a public spectacle of them. Literally, he subjected them to public disgrace by showing them to be powerless. Nothing but smoke and mirrors. And he triumphed over them. That is a word that would be used to describe a triumphal procession with songs and music. When a Roman army returned home after a great victory, it would be a parade. Music. Songs, the general at the front leading his soldier and bringing up the rear would be the defeated king and his soldiers being subject to public disgrace and ridicule. Paul says that's what Jesus did to sin. It's lost its power. New life is possible. In him we are totally, freely, eternally forgiven. Therefore, I believe in the forgiveness of sin. Do you? It's available. It's free. Christ's already paid for it. In a moment when we stand and sing our invitation hymn and commitment, it's an opportunity to discover the forgiveness of sin that we say we believe in. Freely given through Christ who paid the cost to wipe it away, to give us all a new, fresh start. And so when we stand and sing together, I'm going to ask the worship team if they can come. It's an invitation. If you would like to discover that and you have not yet, to pray with you at the, here at the front or perhaps after service. If you want someone just to talk to or pray with, we invite you to come as we stand and sing together. Would you all please stand?